This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. Since the first of the year, we've been engaging in a study in Matthew around one topic, and that is the kingdom of heaven. We've been studying different aspects of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God refers to the manifestation of God's reign here on earth. God is sovereign. So when we say that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, it's not that God has just started reigning. But it's that the kingdom has begun to manifest itself here on earth in visible ways, powerful ways, pushing back the darkness. When Jesus walked the earth, his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His death and resurrection was the victory of the kingdom over the forces of darkness. So while the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated, it's started as demonstrated by the miracles of Jesus in healing the sick, casting out the demonic, and raising the dead. We still live, you and I as believers, in an in-between time. In other words, the kingdom has started, but it's not yet been brought to completion. That will occur when Jesus Christ returns in His glory. So we live as those who are part of the kingdom that has already begun, manifest here on earth. That's why we have the spirit of the living God within us, demonstrating the fruit and the power of his presence. Yet we still live in a fallen world. Yet we still struggle with sin because while its power has been broken and the penalty of sin has been paid, his presence, sin's presence is still with us. Which brings up the challenge we face today. How is it that we as believers who are part of the kingdom of God are to live with those who are not part of the kingdom of God? What does that look like when we encounter that tension of being in the world but not of it? How are we to respond to those who are not believers and are part of a culture that is antagonistic toward the kingdom of God? Jesus tells a parable that teaches us how we are to live as wheat in a world of weeds. Matthew 13, Jesus is engaged in a series of parables about the kingdom. The better known of these parables happens at the early part of the chapter where he talked about a sower going out to sow seed, the seed being the gospel that falls on different types of soil. But Jesus takes those same images of a sower and seed and he changes the meaning in the parable we look at now. So we're going to look at two passages. The parable itself in verses 24 through 30 And then the explanation of that parable in verses 36 through 43. 
Now Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he says this in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. And gather the wheat into my barn. Now the disciples in verse 36 are alone with Jesus in the house. So he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. As the disciples are hearing about the kingdom of God, the questions were ruminating in their mind. Lord, if you're inaugurating the kingdom, why wait? In other words, why are you allowing the kingdom of the evil one to continue while you're inaugurating the kingdom? Why not come now and just wipe them out? It's clear that the kingdom of God has come. Often we tend to think of salvation only in individualistic terms of Jesus died for my sin, that I might be saved. And that's accurate. Apart from Jesus Christ, we have no forgiveness as individuals. But what we tend to forget is this, that the death and resurrection of Jesus also affected change on a cosmic scale. The powers of darkness were defeated. And as I said earlier, the coming of Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God being manifest here on the earth. Jesus really doesn't answer why the delay. Now later we are reminded in Peter that Jesus is patient in his coming back so that others might be saved. But at this point in time, Jesus deals with the issue of how we are to live in the world where we are side by side with those who do not believe. This parable deals with that. Now in this text, we are given a clear instruction on exactly what this parable means. Let's see, I'm trying to well, what it means is this. What Jesus said there in verses 36 through 43. There we go. All right, let's see. if it, There we go. The sower is Jesus. 
the Son of Man. And he tells us also then that the field is, his, is the world. So he's saying that this sower goes out into all the world. It reminds us of the vast scope of the mission. He says the good seed here are the sons of the kingdom, that is, believers. Now, this is a change from earlier. In Matthew 13, in verses 1 through 9, the seed is the gospel. But here he's saying the seed is you and me. Everyone who believes, we're the seed that's cast out into the world. The believers. But then the weeds are the non-believers. The weeds that are there in the field also. And they are put there by the enemy. The devil. And he says then that if you can hit and go on to the next slide. The harvest then is the end of the age, the second coming of Jesus. And then he mentions the reapers who are the angels. So the point of it is this. Jesus is teaching us that the wheat and the weeds will coexist on earth until Jesus returns. Believers, this reminds us that the great divide that we face today is not the divide between Democrat or Republican. It's not the divide between conservative and liberal. It's not the divide between democracy and communism. The great divide we face is the divide in every heart, believer or non-believer, Christian or non-Christian, follower of Jesus or not follower of Jesus. That's the issue. And we are called to go out into the world. And we are reminded in the scripture that that will be the case until Jesus returns. St. Augustine of Hippo in 410 wrote his great book, The City of God. He wrote it in response to the fall of Rome because in 410 A.D. Alaric, who was the leader of the Goths and Visigoths, which just sounds horrible, led them against Rome and decimated the city. Now, when Rome was destroyed, there were people that rose up in arms and said, you know what? Rome was made a Christian city. We tried to follow Jesus. And when we followed Jesus, look what happened. We fell. When we followed the gods of our fathers, the, the worship of Jupiter and Saturn, we were powerful. So the problem that caused Rome to fall is Christianity. So Augustine says, hold up a minute. That's not the case. And he writes this book called The City of God to explain how Christianity was not the problem. It was the worship that was the problem. Worship had become watered down and become pluralistic once again. But within this book, he presented an image like this. He said there is the city of God that is made up of all believers. But there is also the city of man. And these two live side by side. And Christians are a part of both. Because right now we are saved, but we still live in a sinful world. We are saved, but we still struggle with sinful temptations. So we exist in both worlds. So what is our response to be then? Now, for those of you that enjoy yard work, first I say, God bless you. The second thing is I would ask you this. When you see a weed in your yard or your flower bed, what is your first response to that weed? Pull it. Yank it. Get the roundup. Do it in. Act with extreme malice and prejudice toward that weed. Jesus warns his followers that that is not to be our response to a non-believing world. You see this in verse 28. 
The servant said to the master, you want us to go and gather the weeds? In other words, you want us to go pull them? You want us to go get rid of them? This is the violent response to the world. This is that response that says we will coerce them, we will force them. This is a real issue in the time of Jesus. In fact, I would remind you that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter responded by pulling out his sword. And depending on how you look at it, it either had really good aim or really bad aim because he cut off the ear of the servant Malchus, the servant of the high priest. There in the garden, Jesus is praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And when they come, Peter, Jesus looks at him and he says this, put your sword back in its place. Those who take the sword will die by the sword. You set down this path, Peter, it will kill you. Don't you think, Peter, that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll send it once more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you really think that if I, wanted to, if, I, if I wanted to stop this, that I couldn't ask God to stop it? It's a reminder to us that coercion never leads to conversion. That we must be careful to recognize that violence does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. Now today, that may not be our issue as we look at this, this, this situation. I recognize that there are always those on the fringe of Christianity that will argue that, yes, we need to act with violence, but I cannot state strongly enough that is not the way of Jesus Christ. So while our response may not be to pull out the sword, there are two responses that we must be very careful that we don't fall into. The first is that of apathy. Not caring. You see, sometimes our response to the world is to withdraw, to say, well, I really don't care what the world does. So we begin to gather in our own little alcove. And we begin to think about, well, I don't want any part to do with the world. But the issue there is, how can the world know if they don't hear? How can we be faithful to the Lord if we just gather in and hunker in our Christian bunker and say, Lord, whatever happens to the world happens? I would tell you that is not the attitude of Jesus. When Jesus came and he looked at the world, it was with a heart of love and compassion. When he stood over Jerusalem, did he not say, I've got to take a drink of water now? When he stood over Jerusalem... Did he not look out at him and weep tears of compassion and say, how long I wanted to pull you to myself, but you wouldn't come? You know who Jesus gave his harshest words to? It was the religious leaders who in their self-righteousness refused to give any grace or compassion. Those are the ones Jesus condemned. But to the hurting world, he said, I have come to you. I have come as one, not wanting to, to quench a wick that is about to go out or to break a reed that is bent. I have come to bring healing. We need to pray, God, shake us out of our apathy. The other aspect that we contend to respond to is in anger. While we may not be violent, it is very easy for us to live with anger toward the world. In fact, today you ask many what the church is about. Their response will be, well, that's just, those are people that are mad. Anger will drive us to react in ways that do not honor God. So what are we to do? How are we to respond then? 
The answer is found in one word that is the cure to both apathy and anger. And that is the word love. The love of God. Love for God and the love of God that flows through us into others. I know that's not, a, a, well, it is a radical answer, and it's one that often we have heard so often our ears become used to it. But did Jesus himself not say the second greatest commandment after loving God is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Jesus said it's that one who has fallen on the side of the road beaten by thieves. The Samaritan who no one wants anything to do with. That's your neighbor. He also said, I say to you, love your enemies. Jesus said, if we love those that are just like us, that bless us, where's our reward? What good is that? It's easy to love those who, who are alongside you. But to love your enemies? Love those. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said to the church, I give you another commandment. A new one. As I've loved you, you also ought to love one another. Never underestimate the power of God's love to change a life because that is the testimony of every believer. Every believer will stand on the day before God and say, Lord, I do not give glory to any good works within me, for I have none. Lord, I do not give glory to anything that I could accomplish because I could do nothing. I give glory to the love of God in Jesus Christ, for that is the only way of salvation. Of all places, Napoleon Bonaparte got this right. When he said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Those empires are gone. But the kingdom of God endures the one kingdom based upon the love of God the Father. Now look at the warning that Jesus gives. He says, don't go out seeking to pull up the weeds because in your anger you may actually do damage to those who are following Christ. Because here's what happens in our anger or our apathy. We begin to draw boxes and say, well, this is what a believer looks like. And if there's somebody that doesn't fit that portrait, they can't be saved. And so we end up looking and judging with an attitude of criticism and judgmentalism saying, if you don't look exactly like I think you ought to look and behave as a Christian, you can't be saved. Now, I, I confess to you, I used to, I, well, I, didn't, I, used, I used to grow up. I grew up in a small country church in Athens, Tennessee, not exactly a metropolitan, cosmopolitan mecca, if you know what I mean. I mean, this is where cow tipping may have originated. <laughs> and I grew up with this, this, this idea. What's a Christian? It's somebody that goes to church. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't dance. That's it. You get outside of that? No, says I. My senior year of college at Carson Newman, I was elected the state president for the Baptist Student Union. Now, don't be impressed. Nobody else wanted it. 
One of the things that I got to do in that role was to attend the International Students Conference. And I praise God I got to be there. Because there were international students from all across the state that gathered in Middle Tennessee for a weekend of Bible study, praise, and getting one. We're talking students from, from Japan all the way to Africa and Australia. And the culmination of the weekend happened on Sunday morning. When we gathered together for a worship service that lasted about three hours. Because they allowed every culture represented a part of the service. Now some of it I resonated with. But there came a moment where God reached down and he shook up this this tight fundamentalist person who grew up in Athens, Tennessee. Because the Christians from Nigeria were given their opportunity to worship. They began worshiping God how they did in their country. And they did it by the dance. Because they said the worship of our Lord is not just to be in our minds, but in our hearts, but with our bodies. And they took literally where David danced unto the Lord. Now, now some of you are nervous, even me, using that. But I'm going to tell you what. It taught me that morning that the worship of God and my idea of what fits my model of what looks like safe Christianity was blown out of the water. Because they started moving, started making, making joy and grace unto God out of their overflow of His love. And the warning here is that Jesus is saying, you draw your circle, your square too sharply, you'll end up hurting other believers. Because the fundamentals of our faith don't change. Do you hear me? They don't. Belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he is divine, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel that doesn't change. But we may experience different manifestations of worship that should not scare us, but should cause us to say, God, you are greater than I could imagine. So how do we coexist? We do so by loving And that love is shown in sharing the gospel. That's the greatest act of love. See, one of the things that I'm afraid has has, has snuck into our thinking is that because of what has been called the culture wars since 1980, we begin to think that if we get the right legislation in place, we've done our jobs. Now, don't misunderstand me. We need to stand up and speak For legislation that is righteous. But even if we got every law passed. That was in accord with God's word. It would not make anyone a believer. Because if we say. If we get the right laws we're good. We're saying there's another way of salvation. Other than Jesus Christ. Legislation does not equal salvation. So while we are aware of and we make our voice known for what is right and true, we should also be speaking and sharing the gospel. Because that's the only hope. Look closely at what Jesus says at the end when he explains this. He teaches a doctrine that we would like to do away with, but we can't. If you were to ask me, Pastor, is hell real? I would say, yes, it is. You see it described there. When the Son of Man comes, he'll gather the weeds. And they'll be burned with fire. They'll be cast into the furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It tells us it is a place of suffering, 
where there is conscious awareness of that suffering, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, hell is the place where God looks at the sinner and says, you rejected my will, now your will be done for all eternity. Alienated from God. Church, that's why we need to share the gospel. Because hell is real, but God's grace is equally as real. When you look at verse 43, he contrasts the wheat, the end result of the wheat. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's our hope. Radiant, joyful peace. And by the way, this is the only time in the gospel where Jesus refers to the kingdom in terms of fatherhood. Kingdom of their father. Church, by faith, we are adopted into the family of God to say, My father is the king. Therefore, I fear not. Jesus ends with that phrase. He who has ears, let him hear. Church, let us love, let us share the gospel, and let us worship him. Bow with me in prayer, if you will. Father, you remind me constantly of the wideness, the scope of your grace. And that it's working around the world because, Lord, Jesus said that we, we are the seed. And, Lord, you have placed believers all around the world. And I pray this morning that the seed will bear fruit for you. Lord, it's often difficult to know exactly how to interact with those who don't believe, whether they be family members, friends, neighbors. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us love. Give us love, oh God. I pray that you'll give us a, a desire to share your love. And, Father, we, we don't always say the right thing. Lord, it may be just showing love to a, a neighbor that doesn't believe by taking them a, a casserole or something. Lord, I don't know what it'll look like. I just ask you to lead us. That it will be said of your church, that church, they love. If you want to know what love is, that's where to find it. So, Lord, help us in this. We need your spirit, oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen.